What's up, everybody? Welcome to a special edition of the Satsung Podcast. Feeling a little feisty today, if I'm being honest. Some reoccurring neck pain. It's crept up today, but I feel committed to doing this episode because everyone's been asking for my take on shit. Not that it really matters um, what I think, but shit, maybe it does, man. I don't know. But I also want to get to a Q&A because I knew if I asked you guys to ask me questions, you'd come up with the dopest questions ever. And you did. Um, yeah, man, it's a really heavy time to be a human being. Um, and I hope that everyone's doing good. Um, I've been catching myself getting real angry, um, particularly on the social media, the internet. You can get crazy on the internet because you get riled up, man. And people say real dumb shit on the internet. Even, Man, people that you would agree with most of the shit that they think or say or ideas they have politically, whatever. Even sometimes people that you mainly agree with like don't want you on their team or something. Um, it's just crazy, crazy divisive times and we got, uh, you know two Neanderthal degrading brain lizards running for president and Hunter S. Thompson warned us about this shit, man, but here we are. Anyway, I'm going to try not to get so angry. That's going to be my thing right now, even though I'm in pain and even though people are being fucking idiots, I'm going to try to not join them in being a fucking idiot because I am more than capable of being one of the <laughs> one of those. <laughs> So I'm going to try to um, to be love, if you will, even though it's damn near impossible. All right. We're going to get into some, uh, some Q&A here. First. Oh, my gosh. I lost my breath. Oh, man. First question. What moment in your career has been the most meaningful for you? You know, I I honestly, I think playing the first time we played with Michael Franti, that just meant so much to me, dude. I mean, I was just such a fan. Like, not e- it's not even the word, dude. I mean, I was like, you know, just growing up listening to punk rock and hip hop. Um, but also loving like singer songwriters and folk music, dude. When I found Franti, I was just like, oh, you can do everything. You can just be everything, you know, and he was a fucking activist and a dad. And I mean, I just, uh, so yeah, when we got asked to go on tour with Michael Franti, that was pretty much the coolest shit ever. Um, another huge one would be, and I can't even pinpoint when it was, But the first time, I believe it was at Harmony Park, um, we were playing I Am, and uh, and I stopped. I realized that the crowd was singing along very loudly, Um, and I stopped at the end of the song for the last chorus and let the crowd sing it. Now we do this almost every single show, but and everybody there sung every word, and I remember, you know, it's just a powerful feeling. To be like, whoa, this thing that I thought only I was going through. I wrote it down in a fucking notebook, shared it with the world, and you guys related, you know, enough to this song to listen to it enough times to know all the words. Um, that was heavy. 
Um, so yeah, yeah, dude, so many, and they still happen. I'm just stoked every time I get a play, man, and the fact that people come makes me really happy. Um, next question. Have you come through some of your toughest periods of adversity when it seemed like all the cards were stacked against you? You know, I've ta I've spoke, spoke on this a lot. Um, I've just kind of developed this mindset. Once I, I just started cleaning up my act, you know, so I started with alcohol. Um, and if you quit drinking alcohol, man, you know, you find out who your real friends are pretty quick because, um, most people like to go out and drink and it's awkward for them if the, someone in the party isn't drinking, you know? So, um, I say all that to say, you know, once I, I did that, I kind of trimmed the fat off my life and, um, I got to know myself real well and I kind of just made a decision that music is what I wanted to do. Um, and you know, any time that we came up, you know, where there was a fucking band member quitting or, selling zero tickets or like whatever the thing was I just always was like this is when most people would quit you know like most bands get to this part you know their transmission going out or whatever the fucking milestone is and that's what kills them and I just always was like man if I can fucking make it through this part then I'm going to increase my chances of success and the more things that I power through and get over like the more likely it is that I'm going to succeed so my relationship with tribulation just kind of changed and I never, I, I quit seeing it as though as adversity or as cards stacked against me. I started seeing it as like, Ooh, this is one of those things. This is meant to weed out the people that aren't supposed to be here, but I am supposed to be here. So, um, I'm not going anywhere, you know, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, and it's a real powerful thing when you start looking at the world that way, man, it's real crazy. Um, the type of people that you draw to you um, and the type of energy that that starts to exude from your life. Um, speaking of energy, the next question, what does your diet look like? I know you're a pretty healthy dude that likes to stay in shape. Do you or eat certain foods for certain reasons? I was a vegetarian for some time, I think three years, um, and I was drastically underweight, um, and I did protein shakes I did lentils I did the you know I ate man I ate a lot um but I'm just like the most stereotypical ectomorph ever man I couldn't put on weight I couldn't put on weight didn't matter how much I ate I was just scrawny zero muscle definition um and so once I changed my diet I started exercising too and I started to just notice my body change you know when I'm home um as we talk now I've actually put on 30 pounds I would guess 25 of it is muscle, if we're being honest. Um, since February, since the quarantine hit. Um, but, you know, my diet's real clean. Um, you know, if I do eat bread, it's only sprouted bread. Um, I would say 99% of the meat that I eat is local. All of it's organic. Um, um, you know, I, pr I pretty much only get responsibly sourced meat. Um I drink a smoothie just about every day, which usually consists of carrot, apple, kale, celery, um, berries, banana, and then uh, we have a really good vegan protein powder that we use because my wife's a vegetarian and doesn't do gluten. So, um, 
yeah, man, really clean, you know, and I exercise six days a week. So, um, yeah, I take my diet real serious. I take it very serious. Um, I, I like to feel good, man. I like to be healthy, you know, especially, you know, when I have, you know, the rest of my body is seemingly turning on me. I think the least I can do is, is keep putting healthy foods in it. Um, a long second part of that question. Also, I wouldn't mind your take on Western school system. I know you have kids and I'm wondering what you think about the school system. Um, I think it's drastically underfunded. Um, I think that every American history program needs to have a complete overhaul. Um, I have a sister-in-law that is a math teacher, and she's going to hate me saying this. Um, but I think that perhaps instead of teaching kids that aren't going to use it in their life, extremely high-level math, calculus, trig, and stuff like that, um, you know, that that we put a little more emphasis on knowing the actual history of this country, how it came to be, the people that were stepped on on the way. Um, you know, if you listen to the podcast I had with Samir, you know, I remember when I was in high school, I was reading Soul on Ice and just reading about Bobby Seale and, and you know, Huey and Fred Hampton and Angela and all, and all these people, but I wasn't, you know, didn't learn about them from my school book. There was less than one paragraph on the Black Panthers in my school book. And then same thing, there was one paragraph about Malcolm. So I'd like to see an overhaul of history. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's a parent's responsibility to make sure that their kids know that, you know, I bribe my children with money to learn cool shit that I think they should know. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> which is a tactic. But, you know, I was really passionate about my kids knowing who Angela Davis was, who Fred Hampton was, uh, Huey you know, all those, all the Panthers and, and kind of unsung heroes of that whole movement, you know, so I told my, my, my oldest son, you know, when he, I think he was a sophomore, he was, you know, bitching about not having money. And I was like, look, man, I'll give you 20 bucks. You give me seven pages on Angela Davis. Boom. He went and got that money. Um, and then when this quarantine first hit too, I was having my kids do, um, uh, really cool assignments with me too but yeah it'd be cool to see a little bit more of an emphasis on you know actual life skills i think that's kind of a fading state um but um what was your occupation before music and if you couldn't make music what would be your ideal occupation now i love that question before music, I have done, I've worked at restaurants, I worked retail at a climbing shop, I worked at a ski mountain where I live, um, and did a couple different jobs up there, um, construction, um, man, I've done everything, um, everything one could do in, an, in a mountain town for work. Um, if I couldn't make music, what would my ideal occupation be? I would, you know, especially if money wasn't an issue, you know, my retirement plan is to teach jujitsu. Um, you know, I'm only, you know, a few years in on my journey, if you will, but I, um, um, yeah, I really would like to teach kids, kids jujitsu, um, starting out. Um, but yeah, yeah, that would be my ideal occupation. Um, when I'm older, not just teaching kids jujitsu, but I'd really like to train fighters when I'm older. Um, you know, I just, I hope to have a, a really thick knowledge base 
you know, when I creep into my forties and fifties and, um, you know, a big thing that a lot of, uh, a lot of martial arts schools don't teach is, is, is mentality. Um, and you know, you, you get a lot of broken puppies that, you know, that come to the sport, to combat sports, you know, looking for guidance. Um, and I just like to be one of those people there to, to guide. Um, cause I've seen it change lots of lives, including my own. Um, yeah, yeah. All right. So next question. Surely there are songs that you've recorded and written before you started satsang. What and who was the catalyst to writing from a place of vulnerability and authenticity into this vibe we hear today? Has it always been from this heart center? Are there recordings from your past you can share that might not be what we are used to? Yes, but I will not share them. <laughs> I have some recordings from a radio station from when I was 15 years old. My voice is really terrible because I'm not really singing. I'm like doing this thing where I'm kind of talk singing uh, from the back of my throat, not my belly. Um, so no, I won't share them. Um, but yeah, you know, I think it's a big catalyst of listening to so much hip hop. Um, all my songs have been really autobiographical and I, I make sense of my own story by, by sharing it, you know? So, uh, authenticity and vulnerability are, you know, behind pretty much everything that I do, not just music. I just try to always be there. Um, you know, and believe it or not, it causes more fucking trouble than good, really. You know, I it's cool that my vulnerability and authenticity has found a weird way to feed my family, which is killer. But, you know, it also, <laughs> if, you're, if you're living from a place of authenticity all the time and don't really have a sick filter, um, you know, you piss a lot of people off, um, which I'm sure that I do. And I apologize. I apologize for that. But, all right. Some may say, this is the next question, not me. Some may say the con conscious music industry can be quite clicky. How have you coped with it, helped to break that mold, and what are your techniques for remaining humble, not in a scene? Well, I guess I just don't really see a... A, I don't know, you know, really, I've touched on this in a couple podcasts, the, the conscious music scene. I'm not really sure what that is. I think... I know who you're talking about. I know the artists that you're talking about. But uh, I don't think we sound anything alike. So I just, it's so weird where it's like, you can listen to all the punk bands from a scene and be like, yeah, man, those guys are all, that's, that's definitely all East Coast punk. Um, or East Coast hip hop versus West Coast. Um, so I, I get what you're saying. Um, you know, man, I really just try to stay in my fucking lane. Um especially when it comes to making art. If I go into making art with any sort of, you know, premonitions of what I want it to look like, I'll fuck it up, you know, and it won't be authentic. Yeah, it relates back to the last sec sentence. I think we're all just showing up and, you know, trying to express ourselves as authentically as possible. And that authenticity is what kind of clicks us together, if you will. Um, you know, I'm a real different cat, too. You know, I like to fight other grown men as a hobby. Um, you know, I hunt, I fish. Um, 
I lift weights, I, you know, I like to shoot, I, yeah, I mean, MMA, and I'm just into a lot of shit that I know not a lot of other artists are in, so that's kind of how I've helped break that mold, you know, I mean, I, it's weird, like, I obviously look at myself as a musician, but I just feel like in the past few years, I've transformed into so much more than that, like, I'm a father first, a partner, um, a martial artist, um, an outdoorsman, a musician, a friend, you know, I try to like, that's what really helps me stay humble is, you know, I can go on a tour and we can sell out all the shows and play all the festivals. And when I come home, I'm still going to get choked by somebody at the gym. Um, and I think that makes me and my situation real special because not a lot of people, um, hang out and actively pursue getting the shit kicked out of them by their friends. Um, but I really love it. Um, what is your go-to smoothie recipe? I touched on this earlier, but uh, we'll break it down here. Um, one Fuji apple, one handful of kale, one handful of baby carrots, one stick of celery, one handful of shredded cabbage, um, two handfuls of berries, one banana, one teaspoon of spirulina, one scoop of um, raw for living vanilla vegan protein. And I think that's it. But that's pretty much what I make. Oh yeah, and pumpkin seeds. This is the fucking smoothie hack, dude, that nobody gets. Everyone's like, oh yeah, I did the Vitamix thing. I did it just like they make it, but it's all chunky. I know this because I just forgot to put pumpkin seeds in the other day. And my wife was like, yo, what's this cold ass soup you brought me? And that's what it's like if you do, if you don't get that. The pumpkin seeds make it creamy. It makes it all smooth. It makes it all kind of one nice, smooth, drinkable texture as opposed to a, um, you know, kind of thick and chunky, cold garden soup. Feel me? Um, so that's it. What's the funniest tour story you have? Hmm. Oh boy. Um shit. I would I don't <laughs> there's so many good ones. There's so many that weren't funny at the time that looking back on them now are hilarious. Um one was we had left this festival in Oregon and we were driving through Eastern Oregon, which is pretty much just a desert. And we were going up this pass type situation and the dude in front of us or behind us had a had a barbecue grill in the back of his truck and it was very poorly rigged and when he drove started passing us I looked in my rearview mirror and I could see it moving in the back of his truck and I was like man that shit is not in there well wouldn't you know it right when he went to pass us the wind caught it just right and it flew into the side of the van the van shattered the window um, and we had to chase this dude down get him to pull over um and he ended up paying for for the glass which everything ended up fine but it was just a it was a huge pain in the ass um and then right after that happened the next day we got that fixed and then maybe then the next day two days later uh the front two ball joints went out and it was almost 1200 bucks and one of the control arms um, my old van j-lo used to really test me um, 
Next question. What would be your advice as a woman opening her own yoga studio as far as grit, independence, and survival of her dream and sustaining? You know, I would say first off to anyone that's chasing a dream, the first thing that you got to do is be realistic. Um, if you are an experienced yoga teacher and you have the know-how to run a business, there's no reason you can't run a successful yoga studio. So if you can logically say that out loud and believe that and go, no, that's actually true, then nothing should stop you. Like I said, any sort of hardship, whatever that you might face, needs to be looked at as a test to try to weed you out. And you just keep passing those tests um, and you will be successful. I believe that with all my heart. Um, I think persistence and toughness go a long way. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, you know, there's a lot of people like, I was just having this conversation with Will is that I th people just got to get realistic about their dreams. You know, I love fighting. I love it. I love grappling. I love striking. I fucking love it. So much so that I take ridiculous amounts of damage to my body to do it. And I also am 100% aware if I took some amateur fights, I know I would win a gang of amateur fights. But am I ever going to be like a successful fighter with the skill set that I have? Absolutely not. Could I sleep a bunch of amateurs? I think I could for sure. But I know I would never be a world champion fighter. And I think it's important to do that. Like I might be a good musician, but am I good enough to, you know what I mean? So I would say be realistic is number one. Um, and otherwise, if, if you know that you have everything needed to succeed at something... Don't stop. Don't let anything stop you. Um, is punk dead? No. Punk is not dead. How dare you? Punk will last forever. All right. Someone quoted a very, very old song of mine and said, How instrumental were mushrooms when you got sober slash changed your life? Should I just tell the story? Here's the story. Here's the story. So I had been going off and on uh, with sobriety. I'd be, stay sober three, four months. And I'd fuck up. And then I'd go three, four months. And then relapse. And it just kept happening and happening. And, um, you know, one time I was cleaning this shitty little basement apartment that I had that was infested with spiders. And I was listening to Terrence McKenna. And he said, you know... If there's one thing that I've found to be true, it's that, you know, if someone's really struggling with an interpersonal issue, eating a handful of mushrooms by yourself in the dark will help you get to the bottom of it. Not five minutes after that, a friend of mine that I had loaned a piece of climbing gear that I forgot I had even loaned it to um, offered to repay me with just a handful of mushrooms. And I was like, um, weird. Okay. So I got these mushrooms and then I came home and then I was like looking at them in my hand and was like, oh, this is it. They were delivered to me, you know, so I could work through this thing. You know, why am I white knuckling this drinking shit over and over? I could, you know, I couldn't do AA. I couldn't do, I went to rehab and, you know, I did the 12 steps, but I still felt all fucked up, you know, like I still wanted to drink. And it had, it was, every day I was just like telling myself, you can't drink, you can't drink, you can't drink. I didn't want to live like that. So I ate these mushrooms and then I kind of tried to prepare myself, you know. I, I've thought a lot about my dad and how abusive and shitty he was to me and my brother. I thought a lot about um, other adults in my life and 
um, I put I put a lot of I put my heart into kind of a place of darkness of of just really mourning my life to that point and how unfair and how violent and destructive it was and how destructive I was to myself uh, trying to cope with it all. Um, and by the time they kicked in, man, it wasn't, uh, it, you know, I could talk for hours, but it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't an enjoyable experience. It wasn't like, oh yeah, man, it was like a Beatles song. And then I came out the other end super happy. It was the most intense, uncomfortable evening of my life. Um, but, uh, here I am nine years, was it eight years or nine years this May? Nine years sober, I think. No, eight. Nine. Nine. Was nine years. Holy shit. So yeah, um, that's all I really got to say about it. But it, you know, me quitting alcohol was the beginning of, of everything. All right, next question. I want to know about your daily slash weekly routine and what has moving f- toward more discipline helped you in your life. Uh, I equate every success that I have in my life uh, to discipline, uh, whether that's success uh, monetarily, uh, business-wise, you know, becoming more proficient in martial arts, uh, physical fitness, whatever. Um, that discipline is everything to me. Um, so daily routine, I wake up at 5.53 every day. Um, that sounds weird, but the reason that I do it is so right when I'm done with my t- making my tea, by the time I sit down at my desk, it's exactly 6 a.m., um, I don't do it as often as I should, but I'd say probably two or three times a week I meditate and then I journal. Um, other times I just don't, I'm not really feeling it, you know, and I know I should force myself to meditate, yada, yada, but some days I'm just not feeling it. Some days I just want to drink my fucking tea and, um, you know, as weird as it is, uh, I'll usually throw a fight on and I will drink my tea and watch a fight and about halfway through the fight or my tea, um, I'll start to stretch and move my body a little bit as I watch the fight um, and just try to get into my body. I have a lot of uh, injuries and sources of chronic pain. So I, um, you know, the morning is, it's really important that I have that alone time in the morning so I can work through the shit in my body and kind of get myself in the mind frame of like, okay, cool, today it's this nerve pain in my shoulder and this is going to be here for most of the day and um, I need to prepare to deal with that, um, and this sounds crazy as I say it out loud, but, um, <laughs> um, and then I usually go upstairs and wake my wife up, but recently I haven't been having to wake her up, she has been getting up, and then I usually start making her tea while she's in the shower, and then I will make her a couple eggs, and then I make our son lunch before he goes to work, um, and then I am just kind of hanging out, uh, usually shadow box a little bit in the living room while my wife's in the shower and uh, after everyone's lunch is done and I wait for Malachi to wake up. And then when my son wakes up, it's on. Um, you know, I've been really trying to work on balance uh, and having enough discipline to keep my fucking phone away from me so I can just be with my son. But it's kind of hard. We're in the middle of uh, some big changes satsung-wise. So, um and then when my wife gets home at 4.30, I go to the gym and I lift weights and then I come home and we do dinner and 
chill for a little bit and then go to bed and start over. Um, and then twice a week, um, every Monday I go and I have therapy and then I go straight from therapy. Well, not straight. I have therapy, then I eat and then I go train for about four hours. Um, three hours, three or four, depends on who else shows up. Um, and then on Thursdays as well, um, I get up and, uh, in the afternoon I go and go and train. Um, Monday has been striking or leg locks recently and then, uh, straight grappling on Thursday. Um, next question, favorite books? Uh, I'd say my favorite book of all time is Revolutionary Suicide by Huey P. Newton. Um, I really liked Russell Brand's book, uh, Revolution. Um, I'm a big fan of the Bible. Um, Common, Common's newest book, uh, Let Love Win, changed my life and, and convinced me to go to therapy. I always kind of had this weird stigma around it of like, nah, man, therapy is for like if you're in treatment or some shit. Um, and I can tell you, especially if you like me and you got a lot of pride and, um, you know, I pride myself on being the one that's like, nah, man, I don't have any feelings right now. I'm going to just move through this problem and I'm going to carry everyone with me. And, um, you know, therapy has been a big place, uh, for me to really self-examine. Um, and because of that book, um, it convinced me that going to therapy was cool. If common goes to therapy, I should go to therapy. <laughs> um, what tell the story of the most difficult thing that you had to endure emotionally and mentally um crazy question i've actually been thinking a lot about that thing um i'm sure my mom's listening so i'm sure this is a, a shitty story for her to hear um because i don't know if she remembers it or or what but um sorry if this hurts mom but um you know, I think about growing up with my dad, my stepdad, who raised me. We called him dad. We was he. We were with him, eleven months out of the year. Um, you know, my earliest memory is literally of him at a Chuck E. Cheese. It's my very first memory is staring at him at a Chuck E. Cheese. Um, you know, he was so mean to us. You know, when he hit us damn near every day, and it was just like was just under the constant fear of him. You know, and when we were a kid, we would be home, and when you would hear him come home, your stomach would drop. It wasn't like, oh, dope, Dad's here. You know, your fucking stomach would drop. Um, it sucked. Um, but there's one particular incident that really rounds the whole thing out of what it's like to be an abused kid. Um, I would have been eight or nine. I was in third or fourth grade. You know, and we used to make our lunch the night before. And my dad had got home and, and he asked if I made my lunch for tomorrow. And I said, yes, I did. And he looked in there and there wasn't an apple. Um, and I don't know what was going on in his day. Um, but he picked me up by the throat and he threw me into these, this set of cabinets. Um, and then he looked at the cabinets and looked back at me 
I don't remember if I broke the cabinet when he when he threw me into them or or what. I'm pretty sure that I did. Or maybe a handle came off or something. But he then hit me. He hit me in my face and he hit me, you know. You know, imagine a 220-pound grown man hitting a 8-year-old in the face. You can imagine the variance of force to surface. Um, filled up my whole mouth with this taste of iron. Both my eyes went white. I It fucking rocked me. You know, I, I 100% is someone that gets, you know, hit in the head a lot nowadays. Um, I'm 100% certain he gave me a concussion. Um that's what we call ringing someone's bell is when everything goes white and kind of have that tunnel vision. But anywho, I remember later that night I was laying in bed and um, in this in the top bunk in my room. And uh, my mom cracked the door to say goodnight to me and I asked, how long are, is he going to do this shit to us? You know, it's an eight-year-old version of that question. And she didn't say anything. She said goodnight and she shut the door. Um, and I remember in that moment just going, okay, no one's going to save me. I have to survive this. I had to survive. Um, yeah, it's crazy. It's been coming up a lot because I think that really framed how I looked at the world. Um, I didn't look at life to be lived. I looked at it as something that needed to be survived. Um, you know, I'm trying to undo all that, but that's for sure the most difficult thing I've had to endure uh, emotionally and mentally is, um, you know, at the time it was dealing with the abuse itself. And then as an adult, it's like trying to undo all the weird shit that being physically abused every day does to your brain, you know, and your nervous system. You know, my, my wife attributes a lot of my chronic pain to that PTSD, but, um, Lighter familial question. Damn, we just went deep on that motherfucker. I'm fine, though, you guys. Like, <laughs> so, you know, I love my life. Uh, I'm very happy. Um, I've The reason that I'm so open is because I feel like through that openness, I've been able to heal and forgive. And um, I'm fine. Um, or at least actively working on trying to be fine. Um... Tell a story about your grandfather. Any variety, funny, philosophical, a favorite memory. You know, it's funny, at his service, we all had the same memory. My grandfather drove very, very fast when he was on the ranch, or anywhere. But he would drive on these gravel roads, and he would have his open coffee in his lap, and he'd twist the lid off, and he'd pour that son of a bitch while he was driving down this bumpy ass dirt road wouldn't spill a drop put it down put the lid back on and then with his other hand open his can of chew put a dip in and he'd be looking at you and talking to you while he did all of these things while going you know 60 70 on a dirt road um you know i have a lot of i just always remember him being he was tough but not tough in like a not tough like my dad was tough he was tough he was cowboy tough, but he was a sweet man. You know, he hugged us. He put his arm around us. He he was just a sweet guy. Um, and, you know, his whole world revolved around hard work and effort. Um, and it's something that I know that is in me because of him. Um, you know, actually, I'm looking at a picture of him right now that sits on my desk of him when he was 
probably in his early 30s on a ranch in the 60s. Um, yeah, just a fucking stud. He was a tough man, um, sweet, and just a little guy, too. But um, I also remember him lying to my grandmother about not riding in a rodeo, and then he rode in a rodeo and broke his foot. And uh, if my memory serves me right, he duct taped his boot to act as a cast um, and walked around the whole rest of the day. Um, got a few more left if you could touch on what happened to George Floyd I think we could all use some peace and insight right now and it's hard to have faith in our country what are your thoughts on this I think George Floyd was murdered by a fucking coward um, had 18 previous transgressions on his record and somehow was able to keep his job I think he's one of many police officers that get persistent and continuous complaints of excessive force, of uh, inappropriate action and wrongdoing on the job, that are allowed to keep their job because of the way unions are structured, that you have to damn near kill somebody to get fired. <laughs> or in the case of Breonna Taylor, not even that. Listen, man, I've seen all the numbers and I've seen the data... Um, and I've also seen racism right in front of my face from law enforcement. Um, it's a fucking problem, you know, and I think there's a lot of answers to it because I also have met, especially through martial arts, I've met a lot of cops that are good people, that are really good people. Um, but there's so many overwhelming stories of good cops trying to report bad cops and them getting fired for it. So you kind of learn, it becomes this kind of don't, don't ask, don't tell thing when it comes to, uh, to violence, you know, and I, a guy that I can sometimes listen to and, and, and you know, respect uh, as an intellectual thinker is, is Ben Shapiro, you know, and he shared the numbers of white people versus black people killed by the police and those unarmed things and, uh, and, and uh, of those numbers, how many were unarmed and well, I think it's important to share that data. What is not, what it doesn't do is help because we're not just talking about people being killed by the police. Uh, it's an issue of profiling and just inherent racism inside police departments. And if you've ever lived in a big city, you know that to be true. If you have close black friends, you know that to be true. Uh, if you have, you know, <laughs> ask somebody close to you that's black if they've ever had any issues with police uh, every single one of my close friends uh, that is black has m multiple stories um, you know so again you know at the end of the day the best way that I can put it is I know as a white guy I'm never going to have to tell my kid that he needs to be very weary of police officers and should be afraid of them um, you know I wouldn't raise him to believe that he should yeah whatever we don't need to go into that but um, I believe what happened to George Floyd is the boiling point of something that's been boiling for a long time. And we as a country, since the civil rights, you know, uh, first we freed the slaves and then there was Jim Crow and, and, and the government kind of said, well, at least there isn't slavery anymore, you know, and, 
and then we ended segregation and, and told black people, well, at least, at least segregation isn't still here. And there's kind of been this little, this fucking baby step here, baby step here. And then the United States government and, you know, certain individuals and politicians will say, at least it's not as bad as it was. And then you have black people saying, can you just treat us like you treat you? It's, it's so, it's so fucking simple, man. It's so fucking simple. And it's been made into such a complex, bullshit, nuanced, uh, you know, and I'm a huge fan of nuance, particularly when it comes to, you know, expression of things. But this one's really simple, dude. Black people are literally just asking power structures and the police to treat them like they treat white people. It's not that much to ask, man. I... I don't know, man. I could go on and on for hours. I would say revert back to my last podcast with Samir. Uh, Big Samir from The Reminders. We touch on this a lot. Um, I don't know, man. It's a fucking problem. And um, I'm I'm filled with an insane amount of hope for the future because the way we're seeing racial unity right now, and it really has become right versus wrong, um and there's yeah there's a sense of insane unity right now and cooperation um yeah it's beautiful um i'm really grateful to be alive uh to watch it happen and i'm grateful that my kids are going to be raised in a world where they get to see a civil uprising and see the results of it and we're always seeing that all the people saying i don't really get the points of the protests anymore well Look at all the fucking laws and everything that have been changed in this country by protests. It's literally only through civil disobedience that shit gets done in this country. So read a book. Fuck fuck those police that killed that man. You know, that's it. Um, what are your favorite band's biggest inspirations? You seem to have good taste. You speak highly of your wife. Let's go. We'll go step one first. Uh, favorite bands. Um... If we're talking hip-hop, I would say anyone in that whole Soul Clarence crew. Common, Most Def, Black Thought, or, you know, The Roots, um, Talib Kweli, The Reminders, uh, Brother Ali. Um, as a songwriter, songwriter, like uh, The Grateful Dead, it's probably my favorite band of all time. Neil Young, Tom Petty, um, Punk Rock, I would say The U.S. Bombs, um, Anti-Flag, The Menzingers, the Clash, um, and then I really, really love all that old reggae, Desmond Decker, Prince Buster, um, all that old rock steady, uh, rude boy shit. Um, second part of that question, you speak so highly of your wife and seems to have such solid family values. Have you always had this attitude or did you go something, go through something that helped you become this way? Man, I, it's... It's no secret, you know, because I'm real open about it. I would not be who I am today without my wife. Um, You know, she really guided and escorted me through all of the growth and changes that got me to where I am today. Um, I can't say enough about her, you know. You know, and as far as having a family, I mean, it's just, it's given me an entire, it's given me my purpose. That's why I chase everything with such a ferocity. And it's not a, I like that. It's I must have that. You know, because it's not just me, it's for my family. So, 
Um, and then the last part of that question is, when did you start playing guitar? Sixth grade. All right, we got two more. What are your top five core values? Uh, hard work, integrity, loyalty, respect, humbleness. Um, how did you, how long did you book your own shows before having a manager? And what were your steps in between playing at bars to a few people to headlining a venue? Great fucking question, man. Um, I booked my own shows for a while. Um, you know, I always had someone helping out, but it wasn't like an agent. It was just like, you know, someone that knew more than me. And then I eventually just had them teach me their ways. And I self-booked and self-managed for a long time. You know, and, you know, here's the, here's the infamous story of how I got a manager. Um, you know, I bumped into a guy named Brian Langoliers here in Montana, who was on the Yonder Mountain String Band management team. And I asked him not to be my manager. I said, hey, man, could I sit down with you and pick your brain about some shit? And he said, yeah. So we met up and I told him where I was. I went to his office and told him where I was at my career and... You know, just gave him the full 100% honest rundown of where I was at. And he said, you know, essentially gave me homework and was like, you know, here's eight things that you can do. And, and when you get done with them, come back and see me in a few months and we'll, you know, we'll give you a new list of shit to do. I said, cool. So he gave me this thing, man, and I just powered through it all the next week. I just did all of it, you know, because I was home. Um. And at that point, I still had a real job, too. But uh, I uh, I did everything on his list in a few days and came back and said, hey, man, can you give me some more shit to work on? And that left an impression on him. And, and, and he, he wanted to work with me. And he, um, you know, he gave me a van and let me pay him. I mean, it was a shitty van, but <laughs> but it got us around the country. And he let me pay him in really minimal installments. He He fronted me my first... Um, batch of merch, you know, of real merch, like, you know, two t-shirts or a men's shirt, a woman's shirt. Um, and, you know, he just really believed in me. Um, and it was through that work ethic, you know, uh, that he continued to believe in me. And I always just did everything I said I was going to do. And I did it right after I said I was going to do it. And, um, you know, as far as you know I didn't just get a manager and then poof we started selling tickets it was kind of quite the opposite you know we played a lot of shitty shows um you know it's weird I don't really know the steps in between playing at bars to headlining venues I mean we headlined venues and played for nobody you know getting out of the bars the best advice I can give someone if you are like say you live in Chicago the worst thing that you can do is keep playing those like three-hour brewery gigs where you play once a week. Now, if you're just trying to make money as a musician, then like run that shit and do it. But you have to build a demand, right? So when we started in Billings in Montana, 
you know, we didn't do a weekly gig or anything like that. We tried to play once every two months, once every three months, you know, and keep spreading it out, you know. Um, so people wanted to come and they'd pay the $7 because they knew they wouldn't get to see it again for a little while. Um, so it's important to get that hard ticket number so when you're having a conversation with someone, you can say, hey, well, we sold 85 $10 tickets last time we were here, so here's where the money should be, you know. Um, so you got to try to get hard hard tickets um and really just focus on making dope music because the doper your music like people will listen to your shit like that's the big thing for us is like we don't have a giant instagram i won't fucking buy followers or do any of that other bunk shit that all these other clowns do but at the end of the fucking day man people are listening to our music like you know 160,000 a month so it's like just on Spotify, you know, we do the numbers last month, there's like a quarter of a million different people listening to the shit. So like, you know, that's important, dude, is you got to like, make music from an authentic place. Um, and, you know, hope people listen to it, because that to me is more important than anything. It's more important than Instagram likes. It's more important than fucking merch sales. Like, as long as people are listening to my shit, that's all I really care about. Um, yeah. Last question was, how do you overcome? I feel like I pretty much touched on that a whole bunch of different ways. Um, I stay vigilant. I stay strong. I stay disciplined. Keep moving, baby. Keep moving. That's all we can do. So... Um, I love y'all, and I'd love to do uh, I'd love to do one of these solo joints every once in a while um, to check in with you guys. Um, so we'll do another post. If I didn't answer your question, I'm sorry. I thought I got all of them. If I missed, I'm sorry. Um, but we'll do another one. So keep your eye out for a post. Hope y'all dug. Uh, thank y'all. Thanks for listening. Um, later this week, we got Benson Henderson, um, fucking world champion MMA fighter, multi-time Arizona State grappling champion, all-American wrestler, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, black belt, and IBJJF world podium placer. Uh, he's a badass. Um, and a real sweet guy. Um, so that's the next podcast, but... Like I said, we'll do another one of these. So keep an eye out and drop some questions next time. Big love, y'all. Take care of yourselves. Peace.